Father, we are well acquainted with and familiar with this account and this practice. We have read it ourselves or had it read to us, many of us, most of us, probably dozens of times. And yet the familiarity of the story does not belie its significance. In fact, perhaps the familiarity of the story indicates its significance. It is because it is such an essential part of our lives that we have heard it read, heard it recited, and read it ourselves so frequently. And our Father, this morning, as we come to the simplicity of the story, as we come to the familiarity of the story, would you change us and transform us by this story? Would you incite our worship of you? Would you incite our delight in you? Father, would you calm our anxiousness and liberate us from fearfulness as we rest in the finished work and the promised work of our dear Savior. And would you, in these moments, prepare us to take the elements that are before us with worthiness and with joy. So even as, even as we listen to the Word being proclaimed, would you be examining our hearts so that we might be in right standing before you when we take the elements? We pray this in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen. A few years ago, a man wrote a book entitled, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. I never read the book, but the basic premise of the book seems to be pretty self-evident, even just by reading its title. And that is that there is a lot of life that really is pretty simple. There's a lot of life that is not terribly complicated. There are a lot of things that will provide you life lessons that can be learned very early in life and even as a five-year-old kindergartner. Life really is, in many levels, in many ways, pretty simple. And the same is true about our life with Jesus Christ. There, there certainly is a depth to which the Christian faith will go that will challenge even a brilliant scholar. In fact, the deep things of God are not just deep, they are infinitely deep. And while we were, will grow in our understanding of them, there are certain things that even in the eternal heaven we will not fully understand and even not fully comprehend because He is infinite and we are finite. We are created creatures and we carry that creatureliness, that finiteness even into eternity. But there is much of our life with Jesus Christ that is very discernible and very knowable so that even a young child can comprehend Christ, believe in Christ, follow Christ, and be sanctified into the image of Jesus Christ. We, we can be comforted by the fact that, that even an infinite and transcendent and majestic God can still be known by us. He is transcendent, but He is also knowable. And this morning we come to one of those topics 
that is knowable to us. It is an important spiritual practice, but it is also a simple spiritual practice, and it is an accessible spiritual practice, a practice that that any believer in Jesus Christ can engage in. And this practice is also one of the great desires that Jesus Christ has for his followers. It was, it was a practice that was explained by him and instituted by him on the night of his betrayal and trial. It is, of course, the practice of the Lord's Supper. And as Luke, the gospel writer, recounts the story in his gospel, we discover that the desire of Jesus Christ for us in this Lord's table is really quite simple, and it is simply that we remember Christ. He would have us to remember Him. He would have us to meditate on Him. He would have us to to stimulate our remembrance of Him and what He has done in the past. He would have us to to remember the things that He has promised. He would have us to remember the, the affirmations of what the Scriptures say He will do for us in the future. He would have us to remember everything that there is that we might know about Him. This month we have been thinking about key spiritual disciplines. We've talked about the role of Scripture in our lives, and we've talked about prayer and evangelism. We've talked about church and church leadership and church ministry. And this morning we want to talk about corporate worship, and not just corporate worship generally, but we want to talk about one specific aspect of corporate worship, and that is the partaking of the Lord's Supper, the partaking of the ordinance of communion. And the focus of the Lord's Supper is that we remember Christ. It is essential to remember Christ because, because how we live life will be founded on and based on what we remember about Him, what we think about Him, what, how we meditate on Him. All those things drive how we will live for Him and what we will do for Him. As we remember Jesus Christ, there are an infinite number of things to know about Him. Luke doesn't give us that infinite list, but he does point to at least five provisions of Jesus Christ that we should remember. Five things for us to remember. Five five ways in which Christ has acted for us that are the focus of our memory of Him. Five provisions of Christ to remember. The first is given to us in verses 14 and 15. Remember Christ's desire. Remember Christ's desire. In verse 14, Luke writes, When the hour had come. When the hour had come, there is one sense in which he is simply talking about the the ordinary progression of time. So previously, he tells us in this chapter that the disciples had gone and they'd found a room and they'd prepared the room for the partaking of Passover. The sun has gone down. The Sabbath has begun, and the, the opportunity, the time for the partaking of the Sabbath meal is there, and the hour had come. But there's also a sense in which Luke is anticipating something far more than that, and we're going to see this as we make our way through this passage, that Christ isn't just thinking about this event on this day, but He is thinking far into the future. And so when the hour has come, it is not just the hour for Passover, it's not just the hour for the Sabbath, it is for the hour for which Christ was appointed. It is the hour of His preparation for crucifixion and resurrection. And as He comes to that, notice it says, verse 14, He has gathered the disciples, the apostles together with Him. They recline at the table and He said to them, I have earnestly desired, verse 15, 
to eat this Passover. I have earnestly desired. I have longed for this. I, I have, in fact, the, the, the phrase here is actually two words put together, and it is, it is the verbal form and the noun form of the same word. And so it is if, it is as if Jesus said, I have desired a desire. I have longed for. This is, this is Jesus' way of saying, I cannot emphasize how, how much I have longed for this. And, and the duplication of words is to draw attention to the fact that this is His longing. It is similar to what John will do in John chapter 1. He says, grace upon grace. Other writers will say it is from glory to glory. It is, um, it is truly, truly True that something is verified. It's, it's, it's an emphatic way of saying this, this is my longing. This, this is my yearning. This is my passion. And what was it that Jesus desired so urgently? He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover. He wanted to eat this Passover. Now, Our Savior had eaten numerous Passovers in His life. But all of those Passovers paled in comparison to this particular Passover. And what was unique about this Passover? He's not just saying, I I, I enjoy Passover. I'm I'm sure some did. But He wasn't just saying, I I enjoy Passover. I like Passover. I'm I'm looking forward to Passover. But He... He said, I want this one. And what was unique about this one? Notice the end of the verse. Before I suffer. This is the only Passover that Jesus would partake of that immediately preceded His suffering. And He is telling the disciples, I am longing for this Passover because this Passover stands unique, not just in my life, but in the history of mankind. It is the suffering that precedes my, or it is the Passover that precedes my suffering. He wanted this suffering, excuse me, this Passover, because in practicing this Passover, he's not just looking to the past and the way God had provided for the nation of Israel and Egypt. He's not just remembering that by the putting of blood, on the doorposts and lentils over the doors, that the angel passed over those homes and spared the firstborn in those homes. He's not just looking past to that provision, but he is looking to the future and his fulfillment that would provide redemption for all of mankind who would believe in him. He's looking to the past, yes. But he is yearning for this one because it is the fulfillment of the past one and it looks to the future. He desired to eat the Passover, he says, this Passover because it is coming before I suffer. He wanted the remembrance of God's deliverance before going to the cross. He he wanted to be reminded himself of how God had provided for the nation of Israel and how he was the deliverer of the nation of Israel. He wanted that reminder as he went to the cross and wanted to obey the will of God and yet could not imagine being 
uh, underneath the wrath of God and, and wanting the cup laid aside, but willing to do the cup, he needs the reminder of God's delivering work. And he wants the disciples also to remember God is a delivering God. And he wants this one not only to remind them God will deliver in the past, he wants them to think about the fact that God will deliver in the future as well through Christ who is the end of the Passover meal. There is no participation in this Passover without the anticipation of the suffering that would come. And Christ longs for that. For Him to say, I want this Passover, is also to say, I want the suffering that's coming. I want the suffering. I want the work that the suffering will do. But it's not just, it's not just that Christ is longing for this moment in time when He was with the disciples. But he's also looking ahead at the culmination of his suffering and, and what his suffering will accomplish and how, how he will inaugurate the kingdom and how he will bring his children, his bride to him for all of eternity. We looked at this a, a couple of weeks ago, John chapter 14. Remember what he says in John chapter 14, the same night with the disciples. He says, John 14, 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He, He is going to make the place so that He can bring His to Himself. And when he says, I'm longing for this, it is to say, I am longing for the time, not just of this crucifixion and not just the suffering, but but the culmination of what the suffering will bring. I'm longing for the inauguration of bringing you into glory. This Passover that Jesus is longing for reminds us that Jesus is unashamed of the shame of the cross. He is willing to embrace it for the joy set before Him. And the joy is the bringing of His own to Himself for all eternity. This Passover and suffering was a way to demonstrate to the twelve and to us, as one writer says, that His death was no disaster, nor simply the sad achievement of human envy, satanic power, lust, and religious perversion, Rather, it was the divinely foreordained sacrifice for the deliverance of men from their bondage to those very lusts and perversions and for their reconciliation to God. That's why He longed for it. So that He could bring us to Himself. Jesus is making the connection for the disciples. This is a Passover meal in which we look backward but it's also a Passover meal in which we look forward to provision for you. Christ as the slain Passover lamb. Christ as the, as the Redeemer is 
is our remembrance, not just looking backwards, but looking forwards to what He will give us in eternity. John the Baptist, when he introduces Jesus to the followers, to his followers, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And friend, that is our remembrance as well. It is, it is the remembrance of Christ longing to fulfill um, His desire to bring us to glory. John will say similarly, John the, the Apostle, not the Baptist, but John the Apostle will say something similar. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Um, I'm not a farmer. I'm not a rancher. I've never seen a butchered lamb. But I, I think it's quite safe to say that there's no lamb that's been butchered that stands except one. And it is our Savior Jesus. The Gospel, excuse me, the Apostle John continues in verse 9 of chapter 5 in Revelation saying, They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. It is the slain lamb alone who accomplished that. And so as Jesus came in Luke chapter 22 to this hour, He came with joy. Friends, as you remember Jesus Christ, remember His desire to suffer for His people and to prepare them for glory. Remember Christ's desire. Secondly, remember Christ's promise. Verse 16, I say to you, I shall never again eat it in the... Excuse me, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Not only did Christ desire to eat this Passover, but He also promised that He would not eat it again until it would be fulfilled in the in the kingdom, and and that also means, friends, that if he said, "I don't want to eat it until we do it again," it is also a promise, a guarantee, that he would eat it again with them, with all the redeemed of glory. He will eat it again with them, and from this point forward, there is in God's economy no room for a Passover meal that looks back solely to the life in Egypt. But, but there is a looking forward to another Passover meal which will be enjoyed in the Millennial Kingdom. And Jesus says, I will eat this meal again. He's not talking about, he's not talking about the institution of the Lord's Supper. That has not been instituted yet. That won't be instituted until verse 19. And so he is saying there is still a Passover meal which we will eat again And we will eat it in glory, not just looking back to Egypt, but looking back to the cross and looking forward into eternity in what I accomplished at that cross. 
Why, why will that Passover meal be reinstituted? Notice verse 16, because it is or it will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Everything about the Passover and what it accomplished and what it prefigured and what it looked towards will finally be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We have salvation today. We, we have redemption. We have a washing away of our sins today. But friends, our salvation isn't finished yet, is it? I, I, can, I can give plenty of attestation from my own life that my salvation is not finished. But there is a day, one day, when it will be. It will be fulfilled. The washing, regenerating, renewing, redeeming work of Christ will be finished. And on that day, we'll gather around Him and eat this Passover meal with Him. In fact, Mark, as he recounts this in Mark chapter 15, doesn't just say that we will eat this meal, but notice what he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When we get to the kingdom of God, I will drink it new. I will drink it in a new way. I will drink it in a superior way. I will eat, drink it in a um, more powerful way. As you remember Jesus Christ, remember that He will fulfill all things. He has redeemed you, but He hasn't finished, though He will finish what He has begun. And so as we come to the table of communion, we recall His work of salvation, and then we anticipate the full work of salvation to remove all sin and all of the consequences of our sin. We recall the necessity of His death, and we anticipate the necessity of our complete transformation. We recall His redemption, and we anticipate our glorification. We recall the willingness of His sacrifice as the Lamb of God, and we anticipate the complete removal of our flesh of sin. We recall His sparing us from the judgment of God and we anticipate his full work of righteous judgment on our behalf. We recall his fulfillment of the law and we anticipate the completion of his imputed righteousness to us when we are not just declared righteous but we are fully made righteous. Oh friends, all this is coming in the promise that he will finish his work and he will eat this meal with us one more time in glory. Remember Christ's desire. Remember Christ's promise. Thirdly, remember Christ's gratitude. Verse 17, And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. When Jesus took the cup in verse 17, he's still practicing part of the Passover meal. And part of the Passover meal is that there were four cups that would be partaken of at that meal. And Jesus is probably taking the first one because the first one is was a, a cup of blessing, a, a cup of thanksgiving. And so it is fitting that Jesus takes that cup and, and acting as the host of this meal, he offers gratitude. He offers thanksgiving, looking back to what God had accomplished in redeeming the nation of Israel. 
And so this prayer in the Passover meal, this first prayer of gratitude in the Passover meal would typically thank God for His goodness and His mercy, His provision, His fruitfulness for His people. And certainly Jesus, as the host of this meal, would offer that kind of gratitude. But doesn't it also make sense that Jesus is also going to offer gratitude for something else? That Jesus... Knowing what is coming, he already knows. He's not eating this Passover meal in isolation. He's eating this Passover meal in anticipation of the suffering that's coming. That's verse 15. And he knows what's coming. And isn't it fitting that he would give gratitude for that as well? Well, he doesn't use the word thankfulness. We find that same theme in John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer it says in 17.1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he doesn't say I'm grateful But that just permeates those words, doesn't it? You gave me a task. It was my joy to fulfill that task. You you gave me an opportunity to glorify you, and I glorified you. And you can read between those lines, thank you. And then he anticipates, glorify me even now in this hour, even in the cross, would you glorify me? He comes to that hour. Pursuing God's glory and with gratitude for God's glory. Did he give thanks for the cross? I can't say definitively from the text, but I think it seems to be very clear that Jesus Christ, when he gave thanks, he thanked God for the privilege of going to the cross for us. He was not begrudging as he went. He was no unwilling lamb. He wanted it, and he was joyful and grateful in it. Remember Christ's gratitude. Fourthly, remember Christ's fellowship. In a typical Passover meal, each participant would have his own cup. And so he says in verse 14, they're reclining at the table. The table would have been a U-shaped table. The server would come into the middle of that table and put food in front of all those who are participating and make sure that there was plenty of food at the table. And then the participants of the meal would, would either recline on their on their left hands and left elbows, or perhaps a pillow would be put underneath them, and then they would reach backward to the table as they're sitting, laying out, reclining outwards from that table all the way around that U-shape. They would take their right hand and, and grab some food and eat it. And in front of them would not just be the bowl of food, but each one would have his own cup. And it would be typical that the host would give thanks and give this blessing at the beginning of the Passover meal and each would take his own cup and he would drink from it in affirmation of the prayer that was offered. But that's not what Jesus does. 
when he had taken a cup, verse 17, this cup of blessing, this thanksgiving cup, and he had given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. Here, Jesus says, don't just drink from your own cup. I want you to drink from a common cup. And it is one of the ways in which Jesus reminds them that they are sharing life together. It's not just, it's not just that they are friends together, but they are, they are moving to a level of intimacy and fellowship that supersedes anything that they had understood previously. And they have a shared life together. In fact, Jesus will pray about that very thing in that same prayer, John 17, that we've already alluded to. Listen to what he says in, in verse 20. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, that is the eleven, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. We believe in Christ because of the testimony of the apostles carried forward. And he, he is asking, verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me, so that, the, so that the same kind of Trinitarian fellowship that the three members of the Trinity enjoy, we have that kind of fellowship with them. And then watch this. The glory which you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. So the fellowship that is enjoyed by the Trinity is the same kind of fellowship that is enjoyed by God's people in union with each other. And Jesus is tipping His hand here in 22.17 of Luke and saying, I don't want you to just operate individually. Yes, you're individually redeemed, but you have a shared and common life together. You're in fellowship with Me and you're in fellowship with one another. Friends, remember that because of the cross, because of Jesus Christ, we have fellowship with Him and each other. We're a diverse people. We come from different backgrounds and different places. We, we come from different homes. We have different stories of redemption. That is how God brought us to salvation. We, we have some, some of us different skin colors and different ethnic backgrounds and some of us live in different parts of the, of the county. Some, some have come from different parts of the, of the country. Some have come from different parts of the world. And he says we are all one in Christ. We're not different. We are one and we are unified. And he would have us to remember the fellowship. And then he would have us to remember finally, verses 19 and 20, Christ's atonement. Remember Christ's atonement. Remember the atonement and remember that atonement is a gift of grace. Notice what he says, verse 19 here is where he actually institutes the Lord's Supper. He transitions from the Passover meal into what we know as communion or the Lord's Supper. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Verse 20, in the same way he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, This is the cup which is poured out for you. Both Matthew and Luke, or excuse me, Matthew and Mark, both simply say, This is my body which is for you. And there is an implication in the words for you that it's a gift. 
But Luke is explicit in recounting Jesus' words when he says, It is given for you. His life is not taken from him. He is not obligated to do something that he does not want to do, but he is freely granting and graciously granting his life for the singular purpose of redeeming us. He has lost nothing. He has given everything. And it is his joy to do that. That that was always his plan. Was not to have his life taken, but to have his life given. Mark 10.45, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul will say something similar in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, speaking about Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. He gave himself. He delighted to give himself. This idea of of giving is emphasized again, reiterated again in verse 20 when he says his life is poured out. It's not that that it was taken from him, but that he willingly poured out as a gift his life, his blood for another. And the reference here obviously is to the sacrificial system and the pouring out of blood and the, and the purpose of the blood to redeem sinners. And notice in both of these phrases, this body is given and this blood is poured out. He says, it is for you. It is His substitutionary work. It is His vicarious atonement. It is His standing in our place. It is it is His accepting of our wrath and it is done all for us. He, he has in mind our redemption that we could never accomplish on our own. It's always for us. The Scriptures repeatedly affirm this. Isaiah 53 He was pierced through for our transgressions. He did not die because of his sin. He died because of our sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. It's by his scourging that we are healed. It's for us. Romans 5, 6, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly for the ungodly. Romans 8.32, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. He's delivered as a gift to us. I delivered 1 Corinthians 15.3 to you as of first importance when I also received that Christ died for our sins. It's a gift. It's for us. Friends, we often... We often will use a little phrase, there but by the grace of God go I. Meaning, if it wasn't for God's grace, I would be suffering, I would would endure God's wrath. Friend, do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel the weight of, of God who had a right to pour out His wrath on you and instead He poured it out on Christ? Well, friend, he, he took that for us. He took it for us to wash us from our sin. And then he also says at the end of verse 20, this cup that's poured out is the new covenant in my blood. It's not just that our sin is atoned for. It is that our sin is removed so that we can live a new kind of way. 
Verse 20 is referring to the new covenant. That's Jeremiah 31. And that, that covenant has not yet been entirely fulfilled, but it has been inaugurated. It has been initiated. And with the initiation of that new covenant, it means that, that sin has been forgiven. That it's not just the blood of a lamb that has temporarily pleased God and, 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 and put his wrath uh, back and, and held his wrath back, but, but it is that he is always satisfied. For all time. And it also means that the Spirit of God has come and dwells within us and the indwelling of the Spirit enables us to live a new kind of way, not a sinful kind of way. This is what the Apostle will say in Romans chapter 7. Remember this when we were in Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to Him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. You you died to your sin nature. It's dead. So that you can be associated with Jesus Christ. And having been associated with Jesus Christ, He says, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, they were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. (laughs) But now... We have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we might serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. There's a new way to live. And you can please God and delight God and satisfy God, and you can do righteous things, not by living according to the law, but by living according to the Spirit of God who resides within you, and He produces His work through you. Friend, this... Communion table helps us to remember all of those aspects of communion. We're washed and we can live. We remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ's desire. Remember His promise. Remember His gratitude. Remember His fellowship. And remember His atonement. Friend, on this day and every day, make all of your worship to be focused on Jesus Christ, to remember Him and remember His provision for us. Our Father, we thank You for this account. It's really a simple account. It's, it's an account which we are very familiar with. And yet its profundity is beyond our comprehension. What we can comprehend is that we dare not come to this table without remembering Jesus Christ. So might we remember Him now in all of His fullness, as much as we are able, as much as He has revealed. Might we remember, Father, the desire that He had to come to this moment, the promise that He made to cleanse us, the promise that He made to bring us to Him, Might we remember His gratitude in coming to this moment. Might we remember the fellowship that we have with Him and with one another. And might we remember His atoning work that redeems us from sin, that redeems us to righteousness. Father, would You guide our remembrance this morning and this week and every day. We pray in Christ's name.
Amen.